Father in heaven, we're grateful for the opportunity to be here in GYC this year. We're grateful for the opportunity to study the, the word of God. And Lord Jesus, based on your loving kindness to us, and based on our great, great need for you, I pray that you may speak to us through a text, through an insight, through a comment, through a story, that you may speak to us in a way that we can understand. We do not seek to understand everything that is being said. We simply seek to understand you in somehow a small vignette of who you are may flood the room of our mind completely and absolutely. And so we pray for that according to your loving kindness and according to your promises. In Jesus' name, amen. I read a story that maybe you, some of you have heard or have read about a woman who in the middle of the night was driving her small vehicle going home after a long day of work. And uh, quite suddenly, a big truck moved up right behind her, almost to her bumper, and, uh, and then put his bright lights on. And she thought, well, you know, how annoying that is. Uh, what's he doing? And then he would not let go. So she, she accelerated, and the more she accelerated, the big truck would accelerate behind her. And so you can imagine that woman starting to get nervous after a few minutes, saying, what's this guy after? Big rig right behind me, not letting me go. You know, it, it, you would worry. I think that most of you ladies, if something like that happened to you, you would start, you know, dialing somebody and saying, <laughs> help. Um, eventually, she decided the best way to get rid of that truck was to move away from that highway, exit that, go to a parking lot or go to some place where it would be lit and, and, and stop and see if he would go on. And that's exactly what she did. And as soon as she stopped, to her great horror, the man jumped out of the truck, ran to her car. <laughs> and before she could lock her door, opened the back door of her car and pulled the man that was hiding behind her. And then she understood why he was following her. It was to protect her, to save her from a danger she was not aware of. That is pretty much what God is doing with our lives. In many times, we do not understand his motives. We do not understand those motives. Psalm 139, verse 7 and 8 says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the grave, behold, you are there. God is often misunderstood. And he takes a lot of nonsense from us. In John 1, verse 10 and 11, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. 
he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Now think about that. That's the logic. Imagine if, uh, if my wife and I, after raising three children, we have three children in college, okay, and we love him more than anybody else we know, and we pray for them constantly. Imagine um, if we go to their home one day and they don't want to receive it. Says, you know, I don't want you to live with me, or I want you. I don't want you to visit. I don't want. I don't want to see you anymore. You know, it would be heartbreaking enough, wouldn't it? The people you have invested the most on, the people you have, you you would give your life for, are the ones that are saying. No thanks. That is what happens by the millions every single day with God, in spite of what He has done for us. Many run away from God simply because they do not know His intentions, just like that woman did not know the trucker's intentions. They believe in their circumstances, what they're able to see, more than they believe in God's promises what they're unable to see. And that's all why, that is so, that is why it is so critical for us to be in contact with the Word of God. That is why it's so critical for us to read it, to meditate on it. You know, the Bible was not designed for, for us to be, to, to just read it. You know that, right? The Bible was not designed simply to study it. The Bible was designed for us to meditate on it. In other words, to bathe our minds with the words why? Because the words of the Bible are so simple and yet so profound that sometimes it would take several weeks of going over the same material until one day you wake up and say, Oh, that's what you mean by this God. Huh? Because it needs to pierce through that big, thick, dark veneer of that sinful nature we talked about in the previous session. Look at Romans 8, verse 28 and 9. We know that God, that God uh, works all things to work together for those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. What shall we say then? If God is for us, who is against us? If God is for us, who is against us? <clears throat> all things will work together for those who love God. What is God like? What is His nature like? This is the... This is, the, <clears throat> this is the greatest mystery, really. This is the greatest mystery. Um, but let's, let's, let's take a stab at it. Psalm 145, verse 3. And I, I would encourage you to write down these texts and to, and to go back and reflect on them when you have some time alone with God. 145, verse 3. Great is the Lord highly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. So the scope of what God is like cannot be contained, all right? It is unsearchable. There's only so much you can understand. So far you can go with that. Job 11, verse 7. Can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? Obviously, this is phrased to expect to know, you know, you know, obviously, you, you know, you can't, I, I can't discover the limits of the Almighty, thank you. God's nature in the Bible. I, I spent some time a few months ago 
looking at everything the Bible says when it began with the expression, God is. It's a beautiful exercise. It took me a bunch of hours. God is something. And this is the distillation of that, of that study, all right? This is the principal things that I have found from that study, just quickly. Numbers 23, verse 19, it says that God is not a liar, nor does He change His mind. In Deuteronomy, chapter 4, verse 7, we're told that God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. That's the theological word we have for everywhere, omnipresent. In Deuteronomy 4, 24, in Deuteronomy 6, 15, in Hebrews 12, 29, we're told that God is awesomely holy. Those are my words, combining these three verses that are saying the same basic thing. Awesomely holy, like fire, like, like a holy fire. It's like uncontainable. It is like so supreme, so superb. You can't touch it. If you touch it, you'll get burnt. Well, that's basically what God said to Moses, right? No one can see my face and what? And live. That is what God is like. I mean, that's his nature. That's not what he chooses to be like. That's not what he decides on. That is what he is. Another one, Deuteronomy 4, verse 31. Deuteronomy has several of these. And the reason is, you have Moses who has walked with God for 120 years. He is writing his last, basically, a little history of God's people of the last 40, 40 years. And he's reviewing with the wisdom of having been with God, closer to God than anyone else on earth. And so he really starts to understand God. Deuteronomy 4.31, God is merciful and faithful. What is, some, what is faithfulness? Faithfulness is, 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 is reliability, right? You can count on that. You can trust it. You can have faith in it. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, or 10, verse 17, or Daniel 2, verse 47. All of those basically say this. There is one God. God is one. God is one. And that one God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. In other words, since there is only one God, what does God mean when he says he's God of gods? Does he mean that there are other gods? No. He means that anything else who pretends to be a God, he's on top of. There is only one God. None like me, he says in Isaiah 45. There is none like me, so that you are not consumed. Uh, Deuteronomy 33, verse 27. We're told that God is eternal, or that God is forever. Now, what, how, how many things can you say that about? Nothing else. Not even this universe is eternal, or forever. God created it. All right, in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, I mean 30, verse 9, in, in Psalm 116, verse 5, God is gracious and merciful and faithful. He is gracious. It's interesting that it doesn't wait until the New Testament to reveal to us that God is a, is a God full of grace. Grace is this unmerited favor, which many Christians believe only exists in the New Testament. No. 
God is gracious. He's always, always been gracious. He does not change his mind as soon as John the Baptist initiates the New Testament. God has always been the same. He is gracious. He's always been giving mercy without repayment. Job 36 verse 5, God is mighty in strength and wisdom. Mighty in strength and wisdom. Job 36, 26, God is inscrutable. We don't know Him. We cannot know Him. And yet we do not know Him. And, I mean, and, and yet we must know Him, and we are encouraged to know Him, right? But we cannot know Him. In other words, we cannot fully, entirely, we cannot box Him. We cannot encompass everything that God is like. And that is why Ellen White, you know how she finishes those, those powerful last two paragraphs in the book, The Great Controversy. How she, she, she waxes eloquently about us going forever, from age to age, getting to know God's love more and more and more. Inexhaustible. She uses the word inexhaustible. We, we, we will not be able to come to an end. You know, sometimes kids say, Oh, heaven is going to be boring. You know, what are we going to do in heaven? Well, this subject alone is going to keep us very busy. Just to get to know God, the nature of God and the love of God forever and ever. More so. It's not like we're going over the same material again and says, Oh, I knew this. We're not going to come to the point of saying, Oh, I knew about that. No. It's like, Ah, uh, that too? That's more like it. Forever. And ever. Can you believe that? That's God. That is the only God. That is our God. Job, uh, I mean, uh, Psalm 99 verse 9 says that God is holy. Oh, I wish I could spend some time talking to you about what that word really means and how the Bible uses that word, holy. In Daniel chapter 6 verse 20, in Matthew 22 verse 32 God is life. God is life. God is the God of the living. That's why God can breathe into a statue of clay called Adam, 15 feet tall, 14 feet tall, and make him alive. Why do I say 14 or 15? Because Ellen White says that uh, those pre-Diluvian men were more than twice the size of the tallest man today. And so, six feet, seven feet. Anyway, God is life. He is life. He is life. That's why without Him, there is sin. Because sin is death. It's very simple. Very, very simple. You draw from God. You don't draw from God. You're doomed. There's nothing. There is nothing. You don't want anything. Now, the devil is so clever. He, he makes us believe that, it, that, that a no-God alternative is still a viable alternative. No, it's a bunch of malarkey. It is nothing. A no-God alternative is nothing. It's a big black hole. But he's so deceitful he cannot help his own nature now. The devil cannot help but lie. That's all the truth he knows, lies. 
And so that's, what, that's how he, he functions. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 14, God is righteous. God is righteous. In other words, he really has it right every time. He doesn't miss it. You can count on that. It's like he's not... God is never going to come back and say, you know what, remember that two years ago? We didn't quite do that right. Huh? No. God doesn't do that. God nails it every time. Even though we may misunderstand it, even though it, it doesn't make any sense, even though it appears to be a total contradiction to us, the Bible says God is right every time. In John chapter 3, verse 33, in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 18, God is true. God is true. In John 4, 24, God is spirit and worshiped in spirit and truth. And I could say a lot more about all of these. Romans 14, 17, God is righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit. That's why people who, you know, have you met new Christians or people who really have had an encounter with God, a meaningful encounter with God? Have you noticed that they cannot but be joyful? They cannot but be you know, it just kind of flows out of them. Something comes out of them because God is really taking residence in their lives. They, nothing, no problem is big enough. No difficulty is severe enough. God is, you know, their peace and their joy. 1 Corinthians 1, 9. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says that God is faithful. In uh, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, it says God is light. God is light. You don't understand something, go to God. God will light it up. He will bring light in that darkness. He will, he will elucidate. He will dispel the fogginess. Hmm? God is like God is love, 1 John 4, 8. God is love. God is light. God is life. All of that, all of that is just a... Just a few expressions of the nature of God. And you know what? Uh, a, a few years ago, I discovered a signature God has. God has a signature. Um, tur turn in your Bibles to Isaiah. I think that you're going to see this more clearly if you look at it in your Bibles themselves. In your Bibles yourselves here. In um, Isaiah 45, for instance... Isaiah 45, um, verse 24. Uh, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb, I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. Okay? There are three things that are being said there. The first one, the first... So, uh, the first sentence about being formed from the womb is that we're made. Uh, chapter 44. Did I say 45? I misled you. See, that shows I'm not God. That's good. I mean, that's not good, but you know what I mean. It's 44, verse 24. 44, verse 24. I, the Lord, I mean, 
it says the Lord, your Redeemer, the one who formed you from the womb, I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching the heavens by myself, spreading out the earth alone. Um, go across, I mean, it's all over the place. Look in chapter 45, verse 18. 45, verse 18. That's the Lord says, who created, that's the Lord who created the heavens. He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it, did not create it in a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else, etc., etc. Let me just summarize that. Um, in 42, verse 5, it says the same basic thing. This is his signature. His signature is his creation, and it's made up of three things. It's equivalent, to if I wanted to sign my name with three initials, these are the three initials of God. Because you see these three things all the time, all the time when he says, I am God, boom, 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 this is what he says. I made the universe, I made, I made the earth, I made the universe, I made the earth, and I made us to, he made us to inhabit the earth. This is his signature. Now, he could be saying that differently to other angels, but he says that to us. This is his signature to us as human beings. I made everything around. I made this earth for you, and then I made you. Whoa. That's why I'm God. I made you, and I made this for you. What about Isaiah 45, verse 7? Since you're there in 45, verse 7, there's a strange text. Okay, um, that men may know from the rising and the setting of the sun that there is no one beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. The one forming light and creating what? Darkness. What else does it say? Causing, I'm reading from the NASB here, causing well-being and creating calamity. In the King James it says evil, creating evil. I am the Lord who does all these. How do you understand that? God creates evil. You know, a number, a number of people who attack Christianity use that text to turn it against the Bible and says, you see, the Bible is inconsistent. It says, that, you know, Christians say that the devil is the one that caused darkness and evil. But uh, the Bible says that God did. So God is responsible for evil, and God is responsible for the devil, and so forth. And a number of theologians actually uh, have that, that concept. How do you understand this? Well, briefly this, uh, and this, this is worth a, an entire hour's discussion, but the Hebrew for the word darkness there, or evil, is the word ra. Ra means darkness by contrast. Evil, by contrast, it is, it is something that is in, in the context of contrast. Cyrus, in the whole story here of Isaiah 50, uh, 45, is a story of Cyrus being an instrument of God in God's hand, all right, um, for the good of Israel. Was Cyrus evil or good? Well, we would say that Cyrus was evil. He was an idolater. He followed other gods. He was a cruel man. I mean, uh, Cyrus was a lot more cruel than Nebuchadnezzar was and others, and yet he says, he is my anointed. That's what he said in Isaiah 45, verse 1, right? He is my anointed. What does he mean then? He doesn't mean 
you know, he's squeaky clean. He means I'm using him for my objectives. He is my chosen one. Hmm? And sure enough, Cyrus is the one that conquered Babylon. And because of that, you know, the Medo-Persians let the people of Israel go back to Egypt. I mean, to go back to Palestine, right? They wanted to go back to Egypt hundreds of years before. Um, and, and so it was his anointed. Evil, then, is a built-in, is a built-in possibility to carry out the good. And that is in this context here, such as in the case of Joseph when sold to Egypt as a slave. You meant it for evil, he said to his, to his brothers, right? But God had it for good. It was an evil thing. Sure, to sell a brother as a slave, that's an evil thing. And God says, I endorse that? Yes. Yes, he did. Remember, you remember Job? Job had it right, and that's why Job is the first book of the Bible written. Well, along with Genesis. Because Job deals with the most profound issues about God and about us. Job did not complain to God about what the devil was doing to him. Even though the Bible says that the devil was doing that to him, right? Job was right, rightly complaining to God about what God was doing to him. Why? Because Job was a smart man who really understood God, and he said, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to fall into this mamby-pamby idea that the devil made me do it. No, God, you're in control of the devil too. And you can, talk, you can stop him if you want to. And so my beef is with you, God, not with the devil. Oh, the devil may be doing all of these things, but the truth of the matter is that you're allowing it. Why? Why? It is in that context. Remember when, when uh, Genesis, this word is also used in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, and some of you guys who have gone to seminary understand some of these things probably if you took some theology courses. But in, uh, in, uh, in Genesis, the bohu and tohu, you know what the bohu and tohu are? Uh, the void and without nothing, you know, the earth was void and, you know, without form and void. Bohu and tohu. That's, that's, the, that's the expression in Hebrew. And one of my friends has, have two dogs, and they call them Bohu and Tohu. <laughs> you know, Bohu and Tohu, you, you know, without form. And anyway, uh, <laughs> that's the same expression. What happens is that on this planet, before God took a hold of it and created a livable place for human beings, everything is, was toxic. That's what we would find when we go to other planets, right? We can't live there. Does that mean that all of that, I mean, that is bad. That is bad, and yet God made it. It is like, uh, let me illustrate it this way. It's like um, asphalt. Is asphalt good or bad? It depends what you use it for. If you, put it in a, if you put it in a microwave and try to eat it, it's not going to be good. But if you lay it down on your driveway, then that's going to be good. 
Yes. Okay. The the question, the comment, uh, just to repeat for the sake of the of the streaming, and the tape, is I uh, I feel a little confused. It says, you know, it's not clear cut sometimes. How could the end justify the means? Right? Basic basic issue. Well, the end justifies the means as long as it is in God's hands. Uh, because God, God makes it clear that He will be, His actions will be available for scrutiny. That's one of the reasons why we have a thousand years to be with God and, and, and be able to see. And that's why in Revelation chapter 15, we find that expression when the redeemed finally see the end result of it. They say, great and righteous are your acts, O God. In other words, we will, there's a number of things that may be beyond our purview to understand with the limited concept and limited knowledge of God that we have even today. It's, in, in, and pardon me for the crude analogy, but it's a little bit like a, a colony of ants trying to understand me or trying to understand why, for instance, I may destroy their little mound and divert them to another place where they say, you know, that's evil. I mean, not, you know, why, would, why would you do that? Well, there is a, a you know, they're going to, you know, there's a, there's a creek that's going to come this way and it's going to drown you all, you know, for instance. But I can't explain it. It's a little bit of a crude analogy, but that, that's somewhat the equivalent. Remember one of the things that we read is that God is inscrutable. And yet he leaves some things, he leaves some footprints in the Bible that make us think and say, you know, I'm not sure I understand fully what that is. That might be one of those verses. But I, uh, anyway, I hope that's helpful to understand some of it because it is not, it is not that he, cre he, does, he creates evil or that he engages evil in the same way we conceive evil to be. It is the raw material, just like the asphalt, like, like the chemical uh, components of asphalt would be toxic for our system, but in reality can be something very good for our livelihood, for instance, or, or other things. So God is a mystery. That's basically what we're about, you know, bound to understand. What does the Bible specifically mean by this mystery? Ephesians 6, the, the Apostle Paul taught, used that expression a number of times. Pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. I'm going to just run through these and then uh, tackle a couple of things. Colossians 4, 2 and 3. Devote yourselves to prayer, praying at the same time for us as well that God may open to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which also I have been imprisoned. So Paul says that the gospel is a mystery, that what they were given to proclaim to others is a mystery. 
Now, he's using the same expression as the Greeks used regarding the mysteries of, of, the, uh, of the various um, gods of the Greeks. You know, um, the, the closest equivalent in our life would be like, um, what do I want to say, these um, secret uh, societies. Mystery, the mysteries. That is, the, that is the, the context of Greek religions. He's using that expression. He says, yeah, there is a mystery about God. And the mystery is actually having to do with the gospel and what God has done on our behalf. Why? It is a true mystery because, it, you know, you can't put your whole mind around it. It is so big and so vast and so enormous and so... It's like we're always short of fully understanding that. Great, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was revealed in the flesh. Incarnation was justified in the spirit. That's justice, you know, justified. He, beheld, he was beheld by angels, exonerated. In other words, what he did, the angels finally said at the cross, yep, he was right. Man, he was right. He was proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That's the mystery of godliness. What God's activity on the earth to save mankind is about. Romans 16, verses 25 to 27. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which, was, which has been kept secret for long ages past. The KJV says, since the world began. Hmm? That mystery kept secret now is manifested. In other words, Christ has actually embodied that mystery. He has revealed it. His person brought light to that mystery, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ. Be the glory forever. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages, which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If Herod had understood that, if Pilate had understood that, if the, if the, if the high priest had understood it, they would not have crucified the Savior. They didn't understand this great mystery. When you look at the chapter, uh, chapter 3 of Ephesians, which talks about this mystery. This is, three times he mentions it. Look at what he says. He says, the mystery, he says, is the stewardship of God's grace. The stewardship of God's grace. The mystery, verse 4, is this mystery of Christ that is now revealed. Christ is now revealed. He's, he's, he's revealing Christ, so Paul says, I'm revealing this mystery. And finally, in verses 8 and 9, the mystery is the unfathomable riches of Christ. That's probably the clearest expression we find as to what the mystery of God is. The unfathomable, you like that word? Toss it around in your room tonight. You know, you know, I have understood some unfathomable things today. You know, and your roommate says, what? <laughs> Yeah, the unfathomable, un unsearchable, and you can't, you can't reach the bottom. That's what unfathomable is. The unfathomable riches of Christ. That's the mystery of God. How good God is, how powerful God is, how able God is to do what is impossible to be done. God's mystery basically is His amazing love demonstrated in the life of Christ. That's the mystery. 
according to the New Testament. The mystery of God is Christ. One time I asked a group of theology students, I said, if you have the word God and you have a blank and then you have man as the third word, what word would you put in the middle? God, blank, man. God is man. God created man. God loves man. God sustains man. God became man. Obviously, all of those are accurate. But I think the one that really, really strikes me as the most awesome is God as man. In other words, what the New Testament is really saying is, we have never seen God, but if you've seen Jesus, you have seen God. Jesus, if God were to be a human being, he would be exactly like Jesus Christ. If the God of the universe were to be like a human being, would be exactly like Jesus Christ. Man, no wonder this really is, is, is so powerful. No wonder the New Testament pro, uh, apostles really harped on that. I, um, you know, one morning, I guess I, I will tell you this. I was... I was in Miller Hall, and some of you may have heard me say this. A number of years ago, I went to do some research early in the morning, about 5 in the morning, and uh, I, st I, I stumbled on a statement by Desire of Ages, uh, which I had read many times before. And I wasn't looking for anything in those pages, but I read them, and I was not able to finish reading them because... All of a sudden, right, it loomed right before me what I was really reading. It's like I had never really understood that before. And what I was reading was this. The spotless Son of God hang upon the cross, His flesh lacerated with stripes, those hands so often reached out in blessing, nailed to the wooden bars, those feet so tireless on ministries of love spiked to the tree. That royal head pierced by the crown of thorns, those quivering lips shaped to the cry of woe. And all that, this is God. This is God, as Charles Wesley says. My God has died for me. This is God. And all that he endured, the blood drops that flowed from his head, his hands, his feet, the agony that racked his frame and the unutterable anguish that filled his soul at the hiding of his father's face speaks to each child of humanity, declaring, it is for thee. And that's when I couldn't go on. It is for thee that the Son of God consents to bear this burden of guilt. For thee he spoils the domain of death and opens the gates of paradise. He who stilled the angry waves and walked the foam-capped billows, who made devils tremble and disease flee, who opened blind eyes and called forth the dead to life, offers himself upon the cross as a sacrifice, and this from love to thee. He, the sin-bearer, endures the wrath of divine justice, 
and for thy sake became sin itself. Can you understand how you may read this 15 times and it does nothing to you? But one day you'll read this and you say, wait a minute. Did God do this for me? Really for me? For me as if I were the only one? I can get past this thing. And I started weeping. I started just convulsing on the floor and crying out that morning, God, why do you love me so much? Who am I that you, my God, you, God, would do this for me? I wouldn't do this for me. Why would you do this for me? All oh, the love of God to me was so overwhelming, I tell you. I stayed in that state for about 45 minutes. It was so overwhelming. In the love of God just being poured upon, I was, it was almost like new insights, new understanding, text from Scripture all over. It was, you know, things that I remembered that I had done that I, where I had dishonored God in, in selfishness and all of that and how that was how it went against God, and yet God loved me and cared for me and sustained me and forgave me, all of that. It was so overwhelming. I said, God, if you keep showing me more of your love, I'm not going to be able to live. I am going to explode right here in this place. And then it came to the moment that I, I did not say another word. I could not say another word because it seemed to me and you may have read this about, you know, biographies, or you may have experienced some of this. It seemed to me that if I uttered one more word, it seemed to me, if I even raised my eyes, that I would dishonor him because I was on holy ground. It was like God was so real. It was the love of God. The great mystery of the great love of God. Well, I want to tell you a familiar story about the love of God because I think this is the story that Jesus used to show us that nature most clearly. And you know this story. I'm going to go very quickly through that because we don't have a lot of time and you're familiar with it. Luke 15, but a few insights about it. You know what happened. The younger, the younger son requested the, uh, his inheritance from his father, right? The portion of his inheritance. In verse 12 says that the father actually divided his goods between them. That means the father had to sell the property, the, the farm and the, the state, and uh, liquidate a third of that to make it into cash to give it to the young, to the young son. And the two-thirds would belong now to the older son. So he is now destitute as far as legal title is concerned. So... In those days, it was the equivalent of wishing the death of the father. Nobody, it is hard for our, in our Western minds to understand that, but nobody would dare ask for the inheritance before the father is dead or near, nearly dead. It would be absolutely offensive. Uh, today, we still find some, some examples of that. Every once in a while, we hear stories that come from Saudi Arabia or from Iran or places like that, right? where a son or a daughter has offended the father. And, and what's the result? They usually get killed 
or ostracized. But it's not like the father says, okay, you know, that's a, that you, you're entitled to your ideas and we'll go with that. No, that's, that, that is totally anathema. It just did not exist in Bible times. The state was uh, to provide for the father's old age and now the son is more interested in his father's possession than he is in his father, clearly so. Uh, the father sells the state, as I mentioned. In verse 13, it says that he, the prodigal, the word prodigal means wasteful in Old English. And the, the prodigal spent this with, uh, with prostitutes and with friends. It doesn't say that in verse 13. It says that later, but it says that he wasted his money. Every report then humiliated his father all the more. Because the father already was on tenuous ground by giving what his, his son asked for. Nobody in his family would have done that. Nobody in his clan would have done that. Nobody in his village would have done that. And so he was under great criticism by everyone else. And now that the son has that, now he's wasting it in dishonoring the name of the family and dishonoring the name of the entire village. And it's like, who can put up with this anymore? Hmm? So it gets worse. In Luke 15, verse 14 to 16, let's read that one. Um, verses 14 to 16, we find how wrong this choice was by that young man. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be in need. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he was longing to fill his stomach with the paws that the swine were eating and no one was giving anything to him. So three major mistakes. He he became now a servant of a Gentile. No Jew would become a servant of a Gentile. The Gentiles were below them, remember? The only way Jews engage with Gentiles is if they could make money out of them. But now he is a servant. He's working for a Gentile, right? And he forfeited the sonship under a Jewish estate for servanthood to a Gentile. He forfeited uh, farming with servants to assist him for feeding pigs. I mean, that's the worst kind because pigs are considered unclean, the worst kind of animal for a Jew to, hang, to handle. Uh, and then uh, he is substituting hunger for the pig's food instead of the abundance that he had at his father's table. So it was wrong in every count. But verses 17 to 19 say, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread and I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Now, <clears throat> you have three categories of people in a large estate like this that are working for the state. One category are servants. These are people that have perks. They have health insurance, the equivalent of today's health insurance. They, they are provided for. They are part of the family, but not part of the family. You know, they, they're given wages, but they, they are there all the time. Another category is slaves. These people have no basic rights, except that they have some privileges. And the privileges are the fact that uh, the family structure provides for them. They do not leave them on their own. If somebody were to attack them, the family would defend those slaves. 
But there's a third category, and that's the hired men. And sometimes they, they overlap. But uh, sometimes it is a separate category. The hired man is somebody who does not belong to the family at all, who gets paid only by the job and dropped like a hot potato after that job is over. In other words, the family has absolutely no emotional connection with that group of people. And so the son thinks about how the father treats the hired help, which is worse than the slaves, right? Many times people uh, look at the story, and uh, when you ask the, the question, what made the son go back, people say, because he was hungry. He was at the bottom. You know, he couldn't, you know, it's like he was desperate. That's not good enough. You know that there are people that because of pride, they will die right then and there before they ask for help. That happens. That happens even today. And when there is a disconnect, when there is a disenfranchisement between two souls, the other one needs to be extremely humble to say, you know, after I've done this to you, I'm going to ask for your help. So the, the hunger was not the reason. What was the reason? The reason was he began to think about his father's nature. He began to think about his father's character, what his father was like, how his father treated the hired help. And he saw that he treated the hired help so well. He says, my father is inherently good. In spite of what I have done to him, he cannot treat me any worse than he treats the hired help. I don't deserve anything. I don't even deserve to be a hired help. But I'm going to appeal to him to be hired help. And he will let me. Well, is this dying on me? Appears to be. Okay. It's dying on me, so let me, uh, let me just take it from here <laughs> this way. Um, as you know, when he came to his father, verse 20, he got up and came to his father while he was still a long way off. His father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf, kill it and let us eat and be married. For the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. Now here's where we can really understand the father. Here's the father who is left without any legal authority over his estate. Now the top dog is his son in oriental lands that is unheard of. That means that the father has to answer to his son in, the, in, the, in his vigorous, you know, while he's still a vigorous man, able to work because his son owns it. Now the father may, have, may, may be given the deference by his older son to say, you know, you can run it. But the truth of the matter is that legally he's no longer running it. Secondly, 
When he did this, he offended everybody else. And he went to everybody and against everybody else's wishes. No doubt, a man of his stature, because we're talking about a, a sizable estate here with servants, with hired men, with, with slaves, uh, was a member of the council in the village. Instantly, he would have been fired, left out, expelled from that village, from that council. Secondly, he could not, he, 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 uh, I mean, thirdly, the people that traded with him because he had animals and he had you know, business and, and, and you know, crops, etc., would stop trading with him because nobody would do, this is so offensive. You have to understand a shame-honor society. A shame-honor society is based on this. You have to give, the most important thing in a person's life is to honor your family. You do not honor your family, You've you cause shame to your family, you're no longer worthy of being a member of the family, that's the least that would happen, and the, the, the next thing that would happen is that you are killed, in other, in other words, to exonerate the family, not to keep bringing any more shame to the family. That's rare for our Western ears to understand, but that is the way that societies have functioned most of the 6,000 years of life we've lived here. And most, in many societies, still uh, do. In, 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 in the East, many societies do. In tribal societies in Africa, it's still the case. And certainly in the Middle East today, it's still the case. You do not bring shame to the family. And yet this, you can imagine some cousins coming around to the father from time to time, or nephews or uncles, and saying, uh, you know, we heard about the son again. And this is, you know, and, and really, this is really hard on the family, hard on the clan. Um, you know, you don't even need to say the word. You just, you just kind of wink at us. We'll take care of it. You know what that means. We'll take care of it. And I imagine that father looking at them in the eye and saying, don't you touch my son. He's still my son. He is all alone fighting this battle. And then when he sees that son come, he runs and he embraces him. In other words, whatever dignity he had left, he lost it. Because Asian, I mean, Oriental people do not run. Older people, you know, when you're, when you're beyond 25 or 30, you don't run anymore. You know, running is made for young people. I don't know if you realize that, but those of us who are of a certain age, we know that. It, running looks graceful among the young. Running looks shameful among the old. Have you seen an old man run? You know, it doesn't look pretty. It's not pretty at all. It's sad. It's very sad. Have you seen your grandmother run? No? Yeah, right, for a reason. And he runs. He doesn't care about other kids. You know, the kids would have not, oh, look at the old man. He's running because his concern is not his dignity. His concern is the dignity of his son. And that's why when he begins speaking, he covers him up. So before anybody else makes any more fun of that son, he covers him up. He says, bring out the robe right now. Why? Because that robe means status. Sonship has been restored. Forget this hired man thing. Hard help. Forget the servant thing. A robe to say, you are my son. And every hush is quieted right then and there. 
Let us be merry. But th that's not the end of the story. You know, you know how the, the, the other son felt, right? But the other son was just like the younger son. Why? Because he was more interested in his things, in the possessions that he could have. So, you know, I've worked so hard. And you haven't provided this and that. That's why the father says, hey, everything that is mine is yours. Right. Absolutely. Now, it's under your name. You can have all the, all the food you want to. You can celebrate with your friends. That, you know, I have no rights over that anymore. But your, your brother, your brother, you know, the brother says, your son. Your brother, he reminds him, your brother was dead. And now he's alive. That's the nature of God. That is what God is like. You know, when you really think about it, sometimes, let me put it this way, sometimes, you know, I, I, have, been, I have been a Bible student for many years. And uh, I have taught the Bible for 30 years. No, more than that. I... I study the Bible even professionally. And I look at this and I say, God, how little do I know about you? How great, how great, how great you are. How great you are. And, and, and how amazing it is that it takes me this long to understand a few things about you. The nature of God is inscrutable. The depth of the love of God is beyond easy recognition. And yet that is what we're encouraged to study. That is what we're encouraged to, to engage in. That's what we're encouraged to, to learn about, to search after, to, to, to meditate over. Because in that very process, even though we may catch, imagine this room filled with water. Imagine this room being a, a um, it's a fairly large room. Imagine this room filled with water like a, like a swimming pool. And after 80 years of, understand, of, of really going after God and reading the Bible and understanding, you understand the equivalent of a drop. And then you come up for air and you understand that this is not just a pool. This is, this pool, this much goes into an ocean we call the Atlantic. And that much goes into another one called the Pacific. And that goes into something else called the Milky Way. And then God says, when you get to that point, says, now you found the drop. That's the drop. Keep at it. Wow. How many of you today want to say with me, I want to understand God better. I recognize that if I don't understand God, I am left to myself. 
to my own devices, to my own construct about life. I want to understand God. I have got, I have caught some glimpses in the small glimpses of God have so filled my life, have so renewed me, have so given me great joy and peace. It, it, and it is incredible that those things happen so sporadically at times. I want to choose today to say, I want to understand God. I want to know God as it is my privilege to know Him. I want to go beyond the drop. Anybody here today? Father in heaven, oh Lord Jesus, what a privilege for us to know God. This is our life. This is life. This is life. We recognize we have an enemy that is not going to give up that easily. Enhancing our natural tendencies to misunderstand God or to ignore God or to dismiss God. But we choose today to know God. We choose today to seek after God. We choose today to understand God. We choose today to, to meditate in His character, in His nature, in His great love for us. Lord, we recognize today that we need not be impatient about this. This will take a long time, a long, long, long time. And then, after all of that has happened, we will realize we've just begun. So, Father, help us not be impatient. Just help us be determined to know you, who is our privilege to know. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.